World War II, as many of you know, was the deadliest conflict in history. There were about 60 million casualties. And after D-Day, when the Allies stormed the beaches of, of Normandy, the defeat of the Axis of Germany and the other powers became more and more likely. And on December 16, 1944, a few months after that, Hitler launched his desperate last stand offensive in Europe. It's known as the Battle of the Bulge. The battle lasted a brutal six weeks in bitter, cold conditions, people freezing to death. There were more than 15,000 cold injuries like frostbite that winter. In fact, this was the battle in the war with the most U.S. Army casualties, over 100,000 over that six-week period. On December 22nd, thousands of, of Allied troops were surrounded in a Belgian town called Bastion. And because of the weather conditions and the overcast, General Eisenhower couldn't get reinforcements or air support in. And so the Germans had them sur surrounded. They demanded that they surrender. And there was a general named General McAuliffe that wrote down on a piece of paper a one-word reply to their demand to, to, to surrender. And let's see if anybody knows what that one word was. Yeah, all three services, you guys have known it. In fact, it was really cool. Um, after church last night, a guy came up to me and he's like, that was my great uncle that brought the paper that said nuts, like no way, we're not going to surrender, right? And so a couple days later, finally on Christmas Day, the weather conditions cleared and it allowed the Allied forces to, to strike back. And several weeks later, the Allies prevailed, paving the way to ultimate victory in World War II. And you know, after the Battle of the Bulge, the war in Europe was basically over. Victory was all but assured. It was just a matter of how Hitler would be defeated, whether he was going to surrender or whether there would be a bloody battle until the last man standing. And of course, he chose a bloody battle. He chose to take as many down with him as he could. And for several more months until VE Victory in Europe Day, troops continued to fight and die on the European front, even though they were walking in sure victory. You know, a while ago, I, uh, I called my uncle Calvin. Uh, he's a, a retired army officer, pretty high level, and he's a military historian. And I'm like, hey, I'm looking for an example to help illustrate the spiritual warfare today. And he's like, let me tell you about the Battle of the Bulge. And this is a really helpful analogy, actually, in understanding spiritual warfare today, that we have an enemy who has been decisively defeated, yet he continues to hang on and fight until the bitter end, taking out as many as he can until the day he's ultimately vanquished and judged. And so in Ephesians 6.10, I'm going to start out by reading the three verses uh, that we really zoomed in on. We, we really spent three, uh, last week talk developing these three verses. And I want to put that up there and, and set the framework for understanding spiritual warfare really quick. So Paul says this in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's, people aren't the real enemy, right? People aren't the enemy here. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so Paul begins this section. He's like, I want to remind you of the reality of the struggle in the spiritual realm, that there's an unseen realm, that there's more going on than meets the eye. And last week, we, we kind of started all the way back at Eden. And uh, I, I wanted to recap this real quick. And I'm not a good artist, but Jason is. And so I asked him to draw this out. And we'll see if I can. Oops. All right. So just to remind you. When you talk about the spiritual conflict and what's going on, it's kind of an interesting term. We don't use it that much oftentimes. Or some people, you don't think about it at all. Other people are fairly obsessed with it, right? But understanding this uh, from, the, from the narrative, the arc of Bible history, of the history of God's redemptive purposes in this world, we begin at Eden. 
And Eden, like we said, is much more than just a garden. Eden is the place where, where heaven and earth, where heaven meets earth, where God dwells with his people. It's a very special place, and mankind is placed there and tasked basically with dominion, which is to extend Eden out beyond the, the borders into the world. And of course, a, a, a climatic event happens in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, people call it uh, basically humanity falls. We see Satan, the original rebel, the serpent identified in Genesis chapter 3, who's identified as Satan, the, the old dragon, the accuser, the devil. And he deceives humankind and mankind falls. But we also have the very first prophecy of God's redemptive purposes of the gospel. It's called the Proto-Evangelon in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3. If you've seen Passion of the Christ, you saw a scene where uh, the actor playing Jesus crushes the head of the snake. That's where this comes from because it's a prophecy that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, there would be one who would come that would slay the dragon, that would crush the head of the serpent. And so throughout then the course of Bible history, we see Satan warring against that, trying to prevent that from happening. And you have a Genesis 6 a corruption of humanity followed by the flood and the Tower of Babel where the nations, humanity again, tries to create a tower to reach to the heavens. And the nations are dispersed and the nations are divided. In fact, in uh, something interesting happens that we find out about in Deuteronomy in this time. Paul talks about this, the reality of a spiritual conflict, the existence of fallen spiritual powers. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. And so he says, okay, you have like statues. He's talking about food that's been sacrificed to idols and how the thing isn't actually, you know, the rock that they've carved into the, or the stone or the log that they've carved into. And I know that's not the thing, but there actually are spiritual beings behind it that those things represent. And people are doing that. He says, don't participate with that. And what's interesting is he actually quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. And when he quotes, when it says demons in the Greek, actually in the Hebrew, this word is the shadim, which means territorial spirits. And you trace it back to, to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 32, where you see this idea that God disperses the nations and the nations are allowed to go after these other powers, these other principalities. You see them called princes in Daniel, spiritual powers and authorities. And instead of caring for the nations, they rebel. They lead people into idolatry and terrible practices. And God says, I'm going to, my portion is going to be Israel. And so he appears to Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That um, all these nations that are, so to speak, disinherited around the Tower of Babel, I'm going to inherit them back. So you see Psalms like Psalm 82. Oh God, judge these beings and inherit the nations. Psalm 2. I will, the Messiah, prophecy of the Messiah. He will inherit the nations, right? And all throughout this, you see this, this battle because God narrows the line down to David. And at one point, it gets down to one person. And Satan's trying to battle against this to present this prophecy from coming about. And then D-Day arrives. Jesus comes in the form of a baby. Who could have seen that coming? And actually, we're, we're, we're told this big cosmic scene that's going on, you know, besides the cute little manger scene that we see on the cosmic level, you have the dragon warring against, trying to get Herod to do what? Kill the baby. Trying to, try, trying to kill this baby to keep this from happening. It's his sort of battle of the bulge moment, last stand, trying to keep this prophecy from being fulfilled. So he tries to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He tries to knock him off mission, but it doesn't succeed. Uh, finally, he thinks he's got him. He convinces the, the powers and principalities, Paul tells us, that they were tricked. They thought if they could just convince the people to crucify Jesus, they won. But that was actually the moment when it was game over. Because through the cross, he didn't stay in the grave, did he? And the resurrection, he took all the authority and power back. In fact, Jesus won the decisive vi victory at that moment, Colossians 2.15. 
Paul describes it. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle, a public spectacle out of them by triumphing over them by the cross. Well, he thought he won. was He actually lost the battle. And so we live in this period now between Jesus' first coming when the decisive victory was won and his second coming, his first coming, where he says the kingdom of God has been initiated here on earth. It's in your midst, but it's growing like a mustard seed. It's growing like leaven in the loaf in the hearts of people as they follow Jesus. And then the second coming, the time in the future history when the kingdom will come in fullness, when Eden will be restored, but beyond Eden, we're talking a new heavens and a new earth and an eternity with our Savior, with our God. God will dwell in the midst of us and a future beyond anything, more wonderful than anything we can imagine. And ultimately, before this, at the final judgment, the powers of the enemy will meet their final doom. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire, which is created for them. That's spiritual warfare. Understanding it on this great global conflict or global scale of history. Now, if you want to dig into this a little more, because that was a pretty quick flyover. Um, we've got a book. It's our book of the month, and it's available. I don't have any copies here, but you can do it digitally. It's available instantly, audio or digitally, or um, you can order a copy. It's called Supernatural by Dr. Michael Heiser. It's about a four or five hour read. And it'll really help you understand this narrative arc of scripture and spiritual warfare and the context of that. So if that intrigues you, why don't you pick that up and go a little bit deeper as we study this. Now, today we're going to look at a famous passage about the armor of God. And here's the thing. It's going to be a little different than what you typically think about when you think about spiritual warfare. It's going to be how the rubber meets the road, not on a big cosmic level as much as how the rubber meets the road in our individual lives. And so as we go through this passage, there are going to be a number of operative elements of spiritual warfare that we see in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to put those up here real quick. We're going to see truth. We're going to see truth. We're going to see righteousness. We're going to see the gospel. These are elements of what's known as the armor of God, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer, perseverance. These are the operative elements of spiritual warfare when it comes to our lives. Different than perhaps some of the circles you've been in or some of the things you've heard where it seemed like spiritual warfare was all about yelling loudly and shouting at demons. No, actually, Paul's going to say when the rubber meets the road, it works itself out in our lives. Now, before we get to the armor of God, I want to address a couple of common questions. Because you're like, yeah, well, what about like demons and all this? We're going to get into that a little more next week when we talk about prayer and spiritual warfare. But I want to address a couple things. What about deliverance or what about casting out demons? You know, I remember once I was a student in, in Hawaii with a mission school, and I, and I struck up a conversation with this guy on the street, and I'm trying to tell him about Jesus. He was into some sort of Eastern religion, and, I, and I'm telling you, as I had that conversation with him, it felt like I wasn't speaking to him, but I was speaking to an entity within or behind him or something like that. It was the craziest thing. I was trying to share Jesus And I got done with that quick little two or three minute conversation. And I'm telling you, I felt like I had run a marathon. I was exhausted. It was the strangest thing. Since then, I've had some different experiences. I'm praying for a lady. And as I'm praying for her, she came up for prayer. Her shoulders arch up. And I'm telling you, it sure seemed like there was something that had its claws in her. I had another experience in Thailand traveling at a little church that we'd help fund and build over there. And as we're having this time of ministry, this lady um, is on the floor and starts manifesting these demonic kind of sounds. So we prayed for her and prayed over her in this moment. And here's what I believe. I, I believe there's a reality of a spiritual realm. In fact, we've done this the other two services. How many of you have had an experience in your life that you know that you know that you know you bumped up against her? came into, encountered a dark spiritual presence. Let's just raise your hands. Yeah, majority, every one of the services. Like something. Now, either you all are crazy, or there's something deeper going on here, right? And actually, we see this in the scriptures. Jesus confronts demons. 
And one of the primary things is he says, what? If, if I cast out demons by the power of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's the sign. The kingdom of light is invading the kingdom of darkness. This is D-Day, and you guys are out. You guys are losing your authority. You're losing your power and your dominion. And so you see the demons um, freak out whenever they see Jesus, and he casts demons out. Then he sends the 12, his apostles, out and with the authority. And they, they go out, and in, in the name or the authority of Jesus, they cast out gene, demons. Then he sends a wider group out. So it wasn't just the apostles, a group of 70 or 72. And he sends them out, and they come back, and it says this in Luke 10. It says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We see this picture of the loss of authority and heavenly standing. He says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. And if we're one of that kind of church, that's when we pull out the snakes and do the little snake handling thing, right? Now, there is an example in the scriptures of uh, Paul getting bit by a viper and doesn't do anything to him, right? Um. I don't do snake handling, though, so I don't know if it's just not enough faith, mostly because that would, that would really weird everybody out, wouldn't it? You'd be like, hey, come to my church. The music's pretty good. Then there's just a little weird thing with snakes. If you just sit through that, it gets better. I don't think you'd invite your friends, so, so we don't do that around here. Um, <laughs> but he says, basically, in the authority and the power as I'm sending you out, the, the, see, there's deeper, there's spiritual powers that he's referring to here. This isn't, just a, this isn't just a physical thing, right? He says, I've, give, I've given you authority here. However, what? And again, when it comes to spiritual warfare, people go to two extremes. Either like complete, pretend there's no unseen realm and live their lives basically like everything natural is all that, you know, you, what you see is all that's happening and you're like kind of skeptical of anything, smacking of the supernatural, or get obsessed with it. And there's a demon behind every bush and every headache is rebuked in the name of Jesus. And, and, and neither are healthy places at all to go. Now here's what Jesus says. Don't get so spun out on that. Yeah, of course, that's just going to kind of be a normal area of ministry. Every once in a while, you'll bump up into these things. You have authority. You don't want to be afraid. But what? However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Like, focus on what really matters. You have a place in heaven. You have an eternity beyond anything that you can imagine in the presence of God. The rest of this stuff, it's just part of, part of it. Walking. In fact, Mark chapter 16, here, here's what it says. And scholars have debated whether or not this was, you know, the original ending for years and years, but there's a ton of texts and a lot of references to this in the early church. Here's what, here's what uh, the, the ending of Mark says this. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. You know, my experience in a lot of years of ministry is this is the reality. Actually, what you see in the... Uh, the New Testament, we get kind of wigged out on the terms like possession and things, and really the idea in the New Testament is more just of being oppressed or demonized. It's not such a technical thing as we sometimes think. But the whole point is, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of this stuff. You know, number one, it's very, it happens way less commonly than, than you might think. I think part of that is because in our culture, it's very naturalistic. Um, Satan's strategy when it comes to the unseen realm is to convince us that he doesn't exist. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. And so he, he'd be perfectly happy just to influence on the sidelines. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Perfectly happy just to influence thoughts on the sidelines, exert influence, and, and not have people even be aware of his schemes. But then the other side of that is you have different countries like Areas in, on the continent of Africa or Thailand where they're much more attuned to the spiritual realm, much, much more occult practices, witchcraft going on, and it's much more blatant and in your face because they're much more afraid of it. So I've seen that too and ex experienced that. But what do you do if you encounter an actual demon? And like I say, I can count on one hand like the number of times in many years of ministry that I'm like, I'm pretty sure that was it, right? So this isn't like we fixate on this and it's not like it's... <laughs> It's happening all the time, right? But what do you do? Because it can happen. Number one, you'd be calm and not afraid. 
You don't have to raise your voice. You don't have to shout. You don't have to take on some weird voice, like spiritual preacher voice. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have his Holy Spirit in you, he doesn't have authority. You don't have to be afraid. You can calmly tell it to leave. In the name, which the name is not like some magical formula in the name of Jesus. Did you tack on the end? Of, it means in the authority of Jesus. In the name, the character, the authority of Jesus. Tell it to leave. Now, sometimes that's all it takes. Other times it takes more. And Jesus talks about this, and we'll talk about that next week. I'll tell you a story of prayer and spiritual warfare and a story of seeing a demonic influence leave after prayer and fasting because Jesus says that. Some only come out by prayer and fasting. So you pray. You pray. And then you enlist the help of other believers. Get some prayer support around you. Some other people praying. And particularly if you know somebody that's kind of a little more experienced in, in, in these kind of areas, you know, pull in a pastor. And he'll go, I don't know, but maybe he knows the right Bible verses and knows that person, right? So we tend to freak out over this. But here's, here's the reality of Jesus, D-Day, of him storming the beaches of the decisive victory is you don't have to be afraid of this. Now, in this whole topic... I think there's a good caution to have, and that is to exercise humility and caution when it comes to spiritual warfare. We're told in the scriptures that as human beings, we're created a little lower than the angels. But these beings, now, now um, what you got to understand is usually the demons you encounter that are oppressing people and, and messing with people, they're not the same class as the principalities and powers that Paul talks about. The ter- territorial spirits and different, like, there, there are different classes. You see this in the angelic realm, archangels and, and different classes in power. And Jude actually talks about this, and so does Peter. And Jude, he's writing his little letter. It's only one chapter long. He says, I want you to contend for the faith, and, um, but I got to remind you, people are leading some astray. They're leading them into immorality. They're leading them to deny Jesus. And then there's a really interesting thing, he says, in the context of spiritual warfare. He says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, to understand this, you got to go back to Genesis chapter 6, because that's what he's talking about. Get the book. I don't have time to go into it today. That'll help you understand this a little bit more. But just, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Speaking of angelic beings, in, in this, this case, um, the... Uh, the higher, uh, the higher status ones, power ones, right? Position. But when the archangel Michael, now he's one of the big, bad, like, burly angels. I asked my 14-year-old, they don't really say bad anymore. We said that. You remember? That's bad. Now they say sick. So he's one. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know how he'd feel about being referred to by that, but. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. See, there's a caution here to approach this area with humility and not with arrogance. To understand you are a created being, and there are actually beings much more powerful than you in the unseen realm. Peter puts it this way, for God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And literally the Greek word here is Tartarus, which is a fascinating study. Um, Putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Again, goes back to Genesis 6. But if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of of judgment. This is especially true of those who who corrupt, follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. 
bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. And so when we talk about this realm of spiritual warfare, I think it's really advisable from the scriptures to approach this with humility. You don't have to approach it with fear. But your, any authority you have comes from because you're in him. It's not you. Any power you have comes because you are in him. You are his ambassador. You are operating for him, playing on his team, under his authority. And it's a very important thing to remember in this whole conversation. And that brings us back to Ephesians and the armor of God. So there's a spiritual realm. There's a reality. You don't have to be afraid, but approach it with humility and not arrogance. Approach it with caution, right? So back to Ephesians. Here's what it says. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after, after, and after you've done everything to stand Stand firm then. He uses this military analogy, armor. This would be like a Roman army marching on a fortified city, meeting an enemy in open combat. He's using a good military example. This is like, you know, I think we we use football examples like this one. The guys are like, yeah, right? We get this. He uses a good military example. They would have understood this. Now, he, he goes on. He says this, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. Now we're going to look at prayer next week. But what I want to do today is look at these other elements of the armor of God. And literally, this could be like a six or seven week series, you know, one a week. But we're going to do this all in one day. So buckle up. We're going to go through a few scriptures here. Because I want you to see this. And I'm not going to focus as much on the the technicalities of the analogies. Paul is using an analogy. I want to focus on the actual things he's talking about that are the armor. So he tells us about the belt of truth. Like taking truth and putting it on and embracing truth, living within the bounds of what is actually true. See, the enemy is a liar from the very beginning. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. His goal is to deceive you into trying to find meaning and purpose in serving yourself in life, in putting other things above God, and uh, ultimately it will not fulfill. To serve other powers to live your life for a different kingdom, to play on the other side. See, Colossians, Paul says this, Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, so things that humans have made up, and according to the elemental spirits of the world. This is spiritual forces in the unseen realm that deceive and not according to Christ. You've got to take an active stance in making sure that you're not deceived by human constructs and by by the spiritual world that are going to tell you God isn't real. Living for yourself is what's important. In fact, 1 Timothy 4, here's, here's what Paul says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And again, Paul's thinking in Jewish thought, this is going to tie back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview of, na- of, of these nations serving other gods that corrupt humanity through teaching. And he's going to say, guess what? Their, their, their goal is to deceive you. So what is spiritual warfare when it comes to truth? Man, can, can you not look around at our culture and go, yeah, we're right in the midst of this, right? I mean, we can't even agree that there is truth anymore in our postmodern world. That's why you hear all the time things like my truth, your truth, right? Now, the reality is everybody knows this doesn't actually work in the real world, which is, I think, why the world's such a mess right now. Because there is a truth. 
God says there is a truth, and the one who defines it is the one who created the universe and set the laws of nature into motion. There's a God who defines what truth is. And you can either choose to align your life to what the one who created truth says is truth, the one who is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can align yourself to that and choose to live your life according to that, or you can try to live according to your truth and find it leading you constantly down a path of destruction, right? I think you see this really clearly in our culture in a lot of different areas, whether it comes to um, sexuality or gender. Instead of going back to Genesis 127, God created them, male and female, in his image. And he brings us together that, that sexuality is in the context of marriage between a man and a woman committed for life. And our culture says, do whatever you want with your body. That's whatever your truth is, do it. There's truth. And, and here's how spiritual warfare works itself out in this realm. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is waging war in the spiritual realm. You speak truth. Now, you always do that in love, right? And that takes some tact, and that takes some wisdom. But you speak truth. You live truth. You align your life with truth. It's like you get up and you put it on. Truth. And the second one, and I'm going to go a little out of order on these because I wanted to group some of the things that really go together. The Word of God. The Word of God. Jesus says this, and he's praying for us. Sanctify them, us, his followers, in truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart in truth. Let them live in truth. Your word. And literally, he uses the word logos. Who's the logos? Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Obviously, this applies to the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and of God in the, in the Bible. Your word is truth. See, what's really interesting, you know, when on Satan's last stand as he's desperately trying to tempt Jesus, get him to abandon the mission. It's interesting. He, he, uh, he comes to him and tries to knock him off course. You know, hey, you're hungry. You fasted 40 days. Turn these bread, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus replies what? It is written. He replies with scripture. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Um, he, he tries to tempt him. Then he's like, okay, all right, you play a scripture game. I can play a scripture game too. So he, he tries to tempt him. He says, uh, tell you, you, oh, it is written also that, you know, you can, his angels will protect you. So just throw yourself down off the temple. Prove yourself. God will save you. And Jesus replies back, it is written, don't tempt the Lord. Don't test the Lord your God. Um, he, he tries to, Convince him to shortcut the realm. I know why you're here. You're here to reinherit these nations as prophesied. Guess what? I'll give you a shortcut. I'll give them all back to you, all the authority. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me. Shortcut. And Jesus replied, it is written, you shall worship the Lord alone and serve him alone. See, he doesn't let him trip, twist scripture because the enemy will do that. That's why Paul comes around, and in the book of Acts, he's, his kind of last words to the elders of the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, he says, remember, I, I didn't shrink back from teaching you the full counsel of God. That's why it's so important to be in the word for yourself. So when you hear a preacher preaching, you can identify something. You're like, ah, I think that's kind of off base. Have you heard the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid? So where that came from, there was a cult with the cult leader's name was Jim Jones, and he took scripture and he twisted scripture, and he ultimately ended up poisoning a couple hundred people. Um, how many? Thank you. 900 people. That's crazy. They drank, literally drank poisoned Kool-Aid. So we don't really serve Kool-Aid here. Um, if we do, it'd be fine. Don't worry. That's what he said, Right. But he twisted, he twisted 
Scripture, right? And the enemy will try to twist things or take things out of context, which is why it's so important to know the whole counsel of God, which is why we're so serious about teaching the Scriptures here. That's, that's why we are, because you need to know that. That's also, the, here's the thing. So he uses the word for, it's like a dagger more than a, a sword. And here's the idea. You can slice and dice appropriately. You can be quick on your feet with it. And then he uses the word, the rhema of God. It's a word that's translated uh, word, and although it certainly applies to the scripture, it's, here's what I think. It's the idea of present and active And when you have planted, when you have the whole counsel of Scripture in your heart, one of the best things you can do as a parent is to um, make your kids memorize Scripture. They'll resist it. My mom made me memorize a bunch of Scripture. I am so thankful. They're like little sponges when they're kids, right? They soak it up. And I can't tell you how many times, either in a sermon or a different situation I'm in, um, the Holy Spirit just pops that Scripture back into my heart and mind at the exact right time. In fact, in our replicate group, some of you are already doing this, and others of you will more in the future. Um, that's a component. We encourage you to do that because you can still do it, even though you're old. And it's a little harder, right? But you can still do that, and it's so valuable. This is also, I think, those times and those moments when God uses the spiritual gift of prophecy, and somebody gives you a word, and it's spot on. And I've, I've, I've seen this. Now, you test that, right? But it's spot on, and it meets you exactly where you are. I think those things can apply. So he says, the word of God. You got to know the scriptures. You got to be in the whole counsel of God. And he goes on. He talks about righteousness. Righteousness. See, you're, the way the battle works itself out and the way you walk out your day in, day out life isn't so much in this like cosmic struggle as in the struggle to live your life for Jesus. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, there's a war. It's a war for your soul to try to convince you to live your life as if you're the most important thing in the world. To treat, you know, to see your body as whatever you want to do with it to see your stuff, your relationship with your possessions as it's all here for me, rather than living with a heart of generosity towards God and towards his kingdom and others. That's the natural direction of, of hanging on to anger and bitterness. Hey, the whole half, second half of the book of Ephesians, what have we been seeing? It's all about what? Because of the overwhelming truth of the free gift of grace that was given to us in Jesus salvation, the gospel. Um, Now we walk it out in a manner worthy of the calling of God. We walk out the way of love. We follow the example of our master. We're aware of the schemes of the enemy. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. You know, one of his schemes is to get you to hang on to bitterness and unforgiveness towards other people in your life. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. It's so important. See, it's very simple. When it comes to righteousness, when you talk about spiritual warfare, where lives submit to Jesus as their king, the kingdom of darkness is driven out. When, when, when lives submit to the enemy and sin, the kingdom of darkness increases. If you want to, at the very simple level, understand spiritual warfare. See, he's, he doesn't have the authority or power. That's been stripped away from him. And yet people can choose to willingly walk in deception. This is why it's so important to respond to the voice of God in conviction of the Holy Spirit. Part of what the Holy Spirit does is is convict of sin. And here's how you can tell the difference usually between condemnation, which is the voice of the enemy, and conviction. Conviction is the Holy Spirit keeps kind of like pressing on an issue in your life and just tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, we need to deal with this. You can silence that. You can stuff that down and ignore it. But you do so at your own peril. The godly response is to go. The righteous response is to go, you're right. I've sinned. Holy Spirit, give me the strength to walk with you and walk away from this. Forgive me. And then you walk forward in grace and forgiveness. You, you run back to God. The voice of condemnation says you're not good enough. You did it again. 
you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. Think he can love you? Think, think you're even like part of his kingdom, part of his family. He doesn't want you anymore. Just ignore him. Walk away. Get your stuff together on your own. That's the voice of the enemy. Come back when you've cleaned up your act. The voice of the Holy Spirit says, come back. Run home. Confess. Repent. Walk with me. Righteousness. Righteousness. Faith. Faith. And obviously this applies to just trusting Jesus for salvation, but there's also an element of having trust in the middle of hard circumstances. Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. How? Standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So here's what he says. You resist by standing firm in the faith. God, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you, even though things are hard right now. I'm going to resist him by ignoring the voice of the enemy, by saying things are hard in your life. God must not love you. See, no, Jesus actually promised there will be hard things in this life, trials and persecutions. It's not one of his popular promises, but he did. And it's just the reality of life. I trust you, God, even though I don't understand this situation. I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to walk forward and trust, even though I'm confused, even though I'm hurt even though I'm wondering where you are. Having faith and trust in him. And then there's a corporate element of this. Look, So it's like the shield of faith in a Roman army. They'd walk forward. The first row would have these big square shields to deflect things coming. And then as they approached a fortified wall, they'd, they'd literally shoot flaming arrows at them. And they'd hold this up. And together in community, they would hold this up and create a dome and a roof which would ex- extinguish it. That's why the body of Christ and having others in your life to encourage you to do life with is so important. Faith is lived out and walked out in the context of community. Faith. Then you have the gospel. Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And here's the beautiful thing. This is a life on mission for Jesus. This is a readiness to both share the gospel and live the gospel. This is living your life with purpose being part of the whole thing. Like, spiritual warfare is a battle between two kingdoms. This is understanding you're in a struggle, that the goal is to take the gospel to the world, and you're part of that. You play your role in that. And oftentimes that role gets, looks like getting up and bringing a conversation with your kids at the breakfast table back to Jesus, reminding them what Jesus says in that situation, living for the gospel, Walking for the gospel, Jesus says this, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This makes sense in the context of this overall thing. I've, see, I've taken it back. Those powers and authorities, they have no authority. Therefore, you, what? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You're a life on mission. This is our commission. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, um, there's no, like, part-time Christians. There's no retired Christians. You're on mission. And if you're not, you're going to be vulnerable to the attacks because you're just going to be drifting through life. You're on mission. You have a purpose. You seek first God's kingdom. You're prepared and ready and looking for opportunities both to share the gospel and to live the gospel in your life. I remember hearing a teacher teaching in a mission school I was in by this family that pioneered this mission base in Brazil. And when they first arrived, uh, they said it was weird. It was like a spiritual power, a spirit of death over the place. And people were dying at like kind of an unnatural rate all these weird spiritual things. And you know the way they walked out spiritual warfare? They shared the gospel. Obviously, they prayed, but they 
moved in the opposite direction in the physical realm. They started a hospital. And what they did is, is they shared the gospel and practically walked out the gospel, lived the love of Jesus, and started treating people. Whatever spiritually was going on, it, it was gone. It was driven back. See, a lot of times this stuff's so practical, and we're always thinking about just raise your voice or get the prayer right. A lot of times it says you walk your life as a follower of Jesus, and the kingdom of darkness is driven back because they don't have the authority. You take ground for him, and how do you do that? Through the Great Commission, through sharing Jesus, through loving people with the love of Jesus. I know a lady who, who was a property manager here in town, and this is a crazy story, kind of freaky. Um, cool. But she had a renter that came in, and the renter asked, like, hey, is there anything strange in the house Because, like, that happened before? Because we've been hearing weird noises, and, like, on pictures, there's, like, orbs. And we found out, like, the previous renter had a spirit guide come in. Well, about a month goes by, because the lady's like, I don't know. I don't know about anything weird. The property manager, next month, she comes in to pay her rent, and she's like, just torn up. The husband was terrified. Uh, he couldn't sleep. They couldn't sleep because they kept hearing like footsteps up and down the wall. He started drinking heavily to sort of drown this whole thing out. And this lady, uh, the, the renter, she was a Mormon. And so she called somebody from her church to come bless the house, and that didn't do anything. Then she called a Catholic exorcist that came in and sprinkled holy water. That didn't do anything. Finally, she's like at her wits end. She calls a spiritualist in, and the spiritualist comes in and she says, well, advise them that there had been witchcraft performed there, possibly Ouija boards or, or spells, and told them to check the garage and the attic for boxes, and if there's anything, get rid of it, right? And so the husband kind of checks around and nothing in the garage, looks up in the attic, in the very back corner, there's these boxes up there. And he's freaked out. <laughs> he's like, I'm not going up there. He's freaked out. Next day, they have the, the renters have their boss over and they're having a barbecue. And they're telling the boss about this. And the boss is just, like, incredulous. He's like, you serious? This is so dumb. I'll go up there and get that stuff done. True story here. So the boss goes up. And after he gets in the attic, they start hearing, like, screaming and gibberish and rolling around. And um, <laughs> they end up pulling him out of the attic. And he's dazed, completely dazed and confused. He's like, what happened? And they all look at each other and run out of the house. So she's in, back in the property manager's office the next morning demanding to be let out of her lease. You would be too. And this lady's like, well, I, we can let you out of the lease, but there's nothing else available to rent right now. So she gives, him, gives this uh, lady her pastor's phone number. She says, why don't you call and see if he's got any. And he uh, goes and, and meets with... This lady and her husband, and like he's like, I've never encountered anything like this in all 20 years of ministry. <laughs> he's like, I've heard about this from like African missionaries and stuff, but I've never encountered anything like this. But he goes under the power and the authority of the gospel, and he just spends about an hour. They've got some people praying, you know, at the same time, and uh, he brings the property manager with him, and, and he spends about an hour just sharing the whole story of the gospel with with the guy. And eventually he says, hey, really, you like football? The guy's like, yeah. He's like, okay, just understand this. You're either playing for God's team or you're not when it comes to this kind of thing. And, and by the time this hour was over, this, this gentleman couldn't wait to accept Jesus. So he accepts Jesus and the gospel is shared. The power of the gospel is there, right? And so the pastor is leaving. He's like, well, I don't really know what to do about this, but... Um, here's some like worship CDs and some scripture stuff. Why don't you just like play this and read the scripture and one, a couple things will happen. Either get mad and it'll get worse or um, it won't like it and it'll leave. And so that's exactly what happened is uh, they played this stuff. Whatever it was, was gone. Never bothered him again. They lived there another year. What happened? The power of the gospel came into that place. The power of the gospel invaded the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness doesn't have the authority. Light came in, and darkness was driven out. Live on mission. Live for the gospel. That's why Paul, the, the last thing he talks about is salvation and the sword of the Spirit, right? He talks about salvation being like the helmet 
My kid forgot his bike helmet the other day, and I'm like, you forgot your helmet? Of course, some of us survived a few rides without helmets as kids, right? But now you're freaked out because you're like, you got to protect your head. Salvation. Are you on his team? Have you received the free gift? I want to close with this. I just want to remind you of what Paul says about salvation a little bit earlier in the book. Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were playing on the wrong side. You were dead. You're spiritually dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Another definition of the devil, the the rebel. You walked in his ways. You were spiritually dead. You were just going with whatever his influence was. But listen, because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. In this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was grace, unmerited favor, not by works so that no one can boast. Would you stand? As we close here, Winston's going to come up for a minute and and play. But I just want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, in your journey of walking out your faith in this life, are you even aware that you're in a spiritual battle? I hope you are after today. I hope you walk through your week um, aware. If he can convince you he's not even there, he can mess with you without you even knowing about it. When those random things come up, just be aware. You don't have to be afraid. Be aware that there is an enemy in that conflict in your home. Maybe there's something else going on here. Felt so random out of the blue. Be aware. Are you filling your mind with the truth of his word? Your word I've hidden in my heart that I went at sin against you. And then are you submitting your life to his truth? Like, are you aligning your life? Are you responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Maybe there's an area you need to respond to. He's been talking to you about for a long time. You need to go, okay, we're going to deal with that. Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Are you forgiving others? Are you hanging on to bitterness? If you are, it's giving him a foothold, a place in your life, the enemy. Are you trusting him in spite of hard circumstances, hanging on to faith and trust? You know, one of the most repeated commands of Jesus is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus has the victory. And if you are saved, you are in him. You walk with him in his power and his authority. If you're not yet, you're, you're not playing on the right team. You're vulnerable. Your head isn't protected. And what you can do today is embrace what he did for you. Receive the salvation that's a free gift of him. Become part of the kingdom of light instead of part of the kingdom of darkness. So let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that as we close. If that's you in the room, uh, why don't you just pray a prayer like this after me? Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. I want to turn from my old life, turn from my sin and follow you. Would you forgive me? Would you bring me into your kingdom, your family? I want to live my life for you. And Lord, for my other friends, would you just show them how this applies? Give them the strength and the courage to respond to you. May we walk forward in hope and confidence and not fear, knowing that you reign over all. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.